Welcome to the People of Packaging podcast, where we introduce people to the world of packaging and the people of packaging to the world. Here are your hosts, Adam Peek and Ted Tate. All right, we're going to be getting into this next episode of the People of Packaging podcast. Uh, as you already know, season three is brought to you by Doxalent. Uh, Doxalent has a game-changing software that will allow you to properly manage your spec sheets. There's nothing more frustrating than having a packaging job go wrong because you haven't been able to manage your specs, whether you're dealing with email and spreadsheets and sending across different time zones. Doxalent is the premier solution for you to be able to manage those from marketing to engineering to regulatory to procurement. So head on over to peopleofpackaging.com and uh, get your free ebook and you can learn all about what Doxlin has going on. It supports the podcast and we appreciate your support, but more importantly than support, uh, it helps support your company and helps support your brand. So head to peopleofpackaging.com and check it out. Uh, we are going to get into this interview with Doug Renfro. Uh, Doug is at, from Mrs. Renfro's uh, Salsa. They have an incredible product, so many incredible products. And we get into family-owned businesses and intergenerational changing of hands and uh, also the changing of branding. Uh, they recently went through rebrand and the importance of packaging with that. So I think you're really going to dig it. Let's get into this interview with Doug Renfro. I'm excited to be joined here on the People of Packaging podcast by Doug Renfro. You may recognize his last name um, because he is, what's your official title there, Doug? Is it president? It's officially president, which gets you an extra cappuccino once a week. Nice, nice. That's, uh, do you have a, do you go a dry cappuccino or do you like them a little bit more wet? Uh, maybe uh, more wet, maybe a light peppermint tall mocha. Oh, nice. Nice. Throwing the flavors in. That's great. <laughs> well, you are the uh, sweet tooth president then of uh, Mrs. Renfro's, which is, uh, it's just a cool brand. Um, it's, it's a really cool story. Um, so I had reached out to Doug because number one, my family, we just eat their salsa. And I think it's, it's, a, it's got great flavor. It's got a ton of variety. I love how you guys are kind of mixing it up and um, you know, coming out with new flavors. And so we'll get into all of that, but I'm just, I think I even told you that I think I made up a word that we're, we're Ren fans. I don't know if that's going <laughs> to stick I like uh, it. over there, but yeah, we, we love it. So, um, you know, appreciate you joining the podcast and talking about family owned businesses and, and, you know, food and beverage space. And then how does packaging kind of planned all that? So I'm excited to, uh, to jump into it. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, maybe give us, give, for the people who aren't familiar and are too lazy to go onto the internet and Google it, uh, what's kind of the, what's the background behind Mrs. Renfro's and the family? And, um, you know, we, we don't have a ton of time, so I'm sure you could talk for hours about it, but, you know, maybe just kind of the, the Cliff's Notes version of how you got to where you're at today as a company and uh, how I'm sure it's just been a breeze to run a family-owned business. There's never any problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, just a little bit of history about yourself and you know your background and, and Mrs. Renfro. So you can start with either one, yourself or the company. Sure. It's been a very evolutionary process. 80 years ago, my grandparents 
started a company out of their garage and actually ran a distribution company for the grocery industry for 12 years out of the house. Uh, very not glamorous. You know, the company car, which I have a picture of outside my office, going to keep me uh, humble, is, you know, you know, a panel van with a logo on the side. There were no windows. My dad was like, that's the work vehicle, the church vehicle, the vacations, except we didn't have vacations vehicle. Uh, you know, very low to the ground, started off rock solid, true family business. And around 52, they moved into a small building, started making syrup. And I like to tell people no maple trees were harmed. It was just, uh, you know, sugar, flavor, water. And, in the, and later on, they started making uh, Southern Relish. When I was a child, we only made this Southern Relish called Chow Chow, which is super specific, super slow usage. So we never had any money. Hmm. Uh, in the 70s, my dad and my uncle got into taco sauce. The 80s, the Conti. Uh, I went for, I worked here. I mixed all the spices all through college, living at okay. home, which was about as much fun as you think it was. Uh, <laughs> so got the heck out of there, went corporate, worked for Ross Perot's company at the time in Dallas, got an MBA, CMA, some other acronyms. So great training, sucked the soul out of your body. Uh, and just came back in uh, 92. And we've got to do all the R&D since then. I run it with my two cousins now. And as you pointed out, we tend to specialize in being edgy, like craft beer, salsa, mango, habanero, tequila, but at an everyday grocery price, not a gourmet upscale price. Mm -hmm. And along the way, because we have a factory and we keep growing it, we make things for other people. So half of what we do, I can take you into a store and show you seven or eight brands that we make that don't have our name anywhere on it or our state or Fort Worth, Texas. So it's a nice mix now. We're on 170 bottles a minute. Um, Nice. Also doing plastic gallons for food service while we're doing glass jars. And in Renfro, it is fortunate to be number eight out of 600 brands in the country. So we're the biggest little guys. We're way below the top seven, and we know that. But we also are in the UK. If you go to Whole Foods in Piccadilly in London, nice two rows of Renfro. That's Spain, cool. Germany. Yeah, so it's been an interesting ride, as you said. Not always fun. Friend of mine, third gen food business says having your own business is like being punched repeatedly in the head, but <laughs> it's worth it on a good day. That's awesome. Um, and it, like I said, I'm sure there's there's a, a, a ton of reasons and stories and you know things that have come out of that. So you 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 don't have a paneled van any longer. You only have the picture. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> We actually do have the world's shortest truck route. We have an 18 wheeler that goes across the street and back between our two blocks and we own that street. Uh, so we, we just, we're always out of room. So we actually will fill up an 18 wheeler and send it across the street to the other warehouse. God, wow. Jeez. Um, well, I can just say as a, um, so my, my wife and I, and people who've listened to this, have, you, you wouldn't know this, but people would know this. Like my wife and I, we have five kids. They're, ages 13 to five. And so we are always appreciative of good quality food, you know, that tastes good, but it's not, it's not something that we're going to spend a bazillion dollars on because you have right. to, you know, it's cause it's not just them, you know, pre COVID it was like, our house is always full of, you know, people and my son is 13. So teenage boys in the house and it's just crazy how food just disappears. So um, super, super grateful that, you know, we can have good tasting food. That's different. You know, it's not the same stuff. You can mix it up a little bit. So uh, that's, that's awesome. Um, and so 
One question that I had, so you had mentioned that you had kind of left the family business. So you were doing the, the mixing and doing production stuff through college. And then you left. Was, when you left, were you thinking like, I'm going to come back into this business. I want to go get some quote other experience. Or were you like, I'm going to get the heck out of Dodge. I don't want anything to do with this. And then you got into the world and you were like, maybe that wasn't so bad. Like, what was that journey like for you? I really did not think I was coming back. I thought I would go to New York and work in finance. And, uh, you know, it was a tiny little business. We're small now. I say we've grown from itty bitty to small over the decades. But, uh, you know, there was no executive position except my uncle. And he was in his 50s. So I thought, I'm going to go see the big world. And I did. I got to sit, you know, I found myself in General Motors finance headquarters in a mm -hmm. tall skyscraper in Manhattan. I was in Vancouver working on deals. It was great, but I came to realize, you know, I wasn't in control of my schedule. We had a baby, our first child, and I had to call my wife and say, oh, by the way, I'm coming home to get clothes and I'll be out of the country for a week. Uh, and, and working nights and weekends and stress and the higher, I was very good at the political side. So I was making more money than ever, but I detested that part of it. I want to create, you know, we only go around once. I want to do something valuable and have people appreciate it. And to your point, I'm able to make, or I watch people make uh, things that are tasty and good for you and not horribly expensive. That puts a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. And then when it's a product, you know, if it's a recipe I came up with, that's like a, a bonus. That is so much more valuable than being a seven-figure hedge fund guy to me, uh, you know, and your whole job is maybe buying and destroying or shredding companies or, or great companies that nobody knows what on earth you do. My business is simple. We put tomatoes and peppers and stuff in a jar and you eat it. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell people that, uh, you know, I, I, I work in the trash business. We just, we just make trash. Um, it just happens to be pretty trash, but, you know, it, um, yeah, I mean, you can kind of over uh, oversimplify things, I'm sure. Uh, well, that's awesome. And I'm sure I'm going to guess that that has helped a tremendous amount. This when I had mentioned to you that, you know, kind of before we jumped onto the interview that when I went to the Colorado State, which is the Harvard of the Colorado Rockies uh, region, as everyone knows, uh, <laughs> the Colorado State University Rams, um, I got to do a study on family-owned businesses and the amount that fail. I mean, precipitously fail, like big giant companies that try to make the handoff to another generation is really high. The amount that make it to the third generation is almost zero. I mean, it's really, really small. Um, and a lot of times what we had studied, and this was, oh man, 18 years ago, but I'm guessing it's still similar today, is it became, there's a common thread, which was when people within the family would leave and go work elsewhere and get other experience and then willingly come back into the company. Like, no, this is what I want to do. It's not something I feel obligated to do, but I'm now passionate about. That seemed to be a common thread within the, the, the minuscule amount of companies who made it. So uh, I, you know, I know that happened for you. Was that, you mentioned that you run it with, was it two of your cousins now? Right, yeah. Uh, was that similar to them or did, did one of them or both of them kind of just, were they, them, were they mixing and stomping tomatoes with their feet? I don't, that probably doesn't happen. And then <laughs> we, yeah, FDA frowns on that uh, <laughs> or you call it organic. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My cousin who runs production, he, he's worked here since eighth grade, never worked anywhere else, which was actually the path my dad took. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my cousin Becky, who runs, she runs the office staff and freight and benefits, and we all have weird, random assortments of jobs. Uh, she worked in an oil and gas office for a few years and came back. And I do a ton of networking. I mean, I know that I'm not brilliant, so I hang out with people who are. Yeah. And I, I network with a lot of third and fourth gen other family businesses, and it's a mix. I've got half of them went out after college and did something else and came back and half of them have never worked anywhere else. Uh, and I definitely feel it always benefits you to go somewhere else, especially mm-hmm. a big company with proper training and skills. And we've actually got that as a filter for our fourth generation. There's 14 of them. And we've said you have to graduate from college and have meaningful jobs somewhere. Uh, not a, you know, not a shorter or a cook, at McDonald's, which I'm glad somebody does that, but that's not our management track here. Yeah. And inter- interestingly, nobody, the ones who've gone to college and gotten good jobs have been smart enough to stay away. Uh, one, <laughs> my production cousin's daughter is a six-figure executive at Amazon. Uh, I've got a nephew who's a management consultant in Dallas. I mean, there's some really sharp kids and they're so sharp, they don't want anything to do with the food business. Uh, I so- mean... It's uh, if, if you look at, and I'm sure you guys follow the trends a lot more than we do, but, you know, being in the packaging industry, you sort of are, you're not fully industry agnostic, but you know, the, the, the presses and the equipment doesn't care what the industry is, unless it's like pharma, then you got stuff. But so we try to follow the trends and, you know, food and beverage, and you guys probably, it sounds like you have a mix of like retail food. And then you also have, um, you know, the service industry services kind of food. Uh, food services. There it is. Um, but you know, f- the, the food business is, it's, it's tough. I'm not, I mean, you can, you, you could probably go on and on about that, but it's not awful. You know what I mean? Like it, people still need to eat. Our population is growing and it's, it's not, it, it maybe not be as glamorous as like that, that tiny internet company. Is it like an online bookstore, Amazon? That I you'd think mentioned. they do sell books and uh, granola bars now. Uh, it's a couple of other things I've heard, but <laughs> um, I, they might make it. Uh, you know, so and I've I've got plenty of friends who work at Amazon. It's it's a it's a great company, but I just there's there's a side of me that wishes more people would see that things like food production or packaging production or um, you know a friend of mine just did a TEDx Salt Lake City talk about these construction jobs that people are, they're great jobs, you know, that we just kind of overlook. So uh, hopefully one of the 14 or multiple of the 14 (laughs) will step up because I just don't know what I would do personally. So I'm personally invested now (laughs) into the success of, uh, and the the continuing success, I guess, of Mrs. Renfro. So that's cool. and you guys have had to, if we can kind of shift maybe a little bit into, because there's going to be people listening who are, you know, packaging engineers and people in the packaging industry. Um, so you have been through a couple of different brand iterations, uh, it would seem. So talk about that. Is how, how do you guys like decide to change brands? Is it, you know, or, or is it a combination of science and kind of feel like it feels like it does that come up internally is it uh you know a branding design company like how i've actually never asked anybody about that i just i'm kind of curious like how does that conversation come up to where you go we're going to make this change and 
maybe a change that's gone really well? And have you had a change that you were like, that was a disaster. We would have never done that again. It's, it's a great question because it's one of the most gut-wrenching things you can do is rebrand because you just hope to God that it works. But uh, you tend to look around and frankly, your customers will give you clues. And we actually, when I came back, we had a plain white label and the product name, everything was in block letters and it might be all red on this label and all green on that one. And it, it looked like my grandmother had just whipped up in the station wagon with the product, which is exactly what we were going for in like 1959 when my uncle came up with that, which was lovely. But in a family business, we have a dis uh, one of the phrases you hear is uh, recommending change is not an indictment of the past. You know, and you mm -hmm. have to, when you say we want to change it, the other generation can take it as, well, you're saying my idea was stupid. Like, no, it was brilliant. But now it's 1992. I'm literally having buyers say, I can't sell that ugly label. Uh, so we, uh, but we also didn't have a lot of money. So uh, we, we got a little bit of design help and did a little bit of improvement. We stuck my grandmother's face on the side of the label and made some progress. And as we got more money, we, we hired a real ad agency. They came up with some violently different suggestions. And so we, speaking of packaging, we found out we were big enough to emboss our name in the glass for the first time. Oh yeah. Get a custom lid for the first time. Cause that's when I learned custom lids don't cost that much more. It's just, you need to buy a lot of them yep. pretty quickly. And I will tell you, seriously, the first trade show we went to in New York, we stood back with great trepidation and watched people come up because we did a violent repackaging. We weren't patient people. And people consistently said, oh, thank God you finally updated your label. And my poor white-haired uncle would say, you always told me to never change it. And I'm like, well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And these are issues you don't have if you're General Motors. But when your name's on the package, people don't always tell you the truth. And then that, was, that got stagnant. That was 17 years later. A year and a half ago, we looked up and our label had gotten really busy and we had cut corners and done internal graphics changes and additions. Mm -hmm. So we went with a new vibrant super group of young millennials who we were trying to reach, but none of us are millennials. I call it a firm of 25, 25 year olds. And they came up with another violently different set of uh, labels and look and feel and we blew it out to every piece of our business. And thank God it, and then the pandemic came and all of our volume shot up in the grocery industry because people were staying home eating and cooking mm -hmm. and because of our newer, cleaner look that you can read from six feet away from the shelf. Right. We think that's been one of the reasons that we captured actually market share from other people. Yeah. Uh, that's it, story. It, I'm going to stick with it. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. There's such a, um, I mean, there, there's so much conversation and um, just chatter right now about, oh, what's going to happen with e-commerce versus retail? And, you know, is everybody going to go to e-commerce? And I forget what the last number I saw, but it's like, I don't remember what, I'm going to make it up, but 4% of all grocery purchases are done through e-commerce. It's, I mean, so yes, it's growing obviously, but that retail shelf presence is has not gone away. I mean, so I live in Salt Lake City and our grocery stores are still plenty busy. You know, I mean, you'd think that everyone's just ordering stuff online, but, um, and oftentimes I'll go in and actually did this last night um, for a salad dressing company. And I just took a picture. I said, six feet back. I took a picture with my cell phone and I said, find your brand. Where are you in this thing? Because sometimes it, be, it just becomes a sort of, I don't, you know, it's like copycat syndrome almost, you know, and, 
And uh, so that's it because I think, you know, just truthfully, I think that you guys have done a really nice job. You've got good, clean fonts. You've got bright, vibrant colors. It doesn't fade into the product. Sometimes you see that um, with, with some of the labels. So it was, it's, and most importantly, I didn't, as a consumer, I didn't lose the brand. Sometimes that can happen with a rebrand, especially at a shelf, right? Is you right. do this big changeover and now nobody can find you. It's not like they've stopped wanting to buy your products. They just don't recognize it. And so their eyes go somewhere else. And I think you have, I don't know what the number is, eight seconds or something like that, or less, four seconds now to grab someone's attention. Um, so then, they, then they, they're off to something else, right? Yeah. And now, now, you know, they've, they're, they're, uh, they're fickle mistresses, those consumers, right? So they'll, they'll pick something up and then it's, that's their new thing. And, and you don't, you don't ever get that back. So, uh, that's cool. And, and so this was a brand new, um, I guess I just hadn't paid. I I knew that you had new labels on it, but this was all like all kind of hit right before the COVID pandemic. Right. You see behind me, I, while I was at it, I realized this situation is not changing quickly. So I had the ad agency create six professional Zoom backgrounds for me. Mm-hmm. I can change it and show you my grandparents in a cabbage field in the 50s. Uh, you know, your notepad, your shipper, our gift boxes now have a drawing of my grandmother. And it says there's a little bit of Mrs. Renfro's or it says a, there's a little bit of grandma in every jar. Not mm. literally. Uh, yeah, and that, <laughs> it says that it says not literally. It does. And that's that's fantastic. <laughs> This ad agency is so good. It just gets the, you know, a little edginess to it to get people's attention and not be boring. Yeah. Because there's so much noise in this channel. Uh, as you said, I mean, look, 600 brands of salsa attract in the country, each of which has multiple SKUs. You know, you got to do something to, to stand out. And looking behind your head, I can see the peach on that peach salsa. I can't yeah, exactly. It, but I, I know that's peach. Yeah, I know that's a mango. And that's what they were trying to get across is let's help people spend less energy identifying what they want, grabbing it and moving on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. And, you know, especially like with the lids, I mean, it's just, it's just very, it, it's, it's really well done. So Thank you. Um, I, I'm sure that that's gotta be a, that's a scary, it's, just, it's gotta be a scary, I've never done it personally. I've just been on the other side of it. It's like, okay, whatever, whatever you want us to make, we'll make it. But uh, just putting yourself out there like that. Um, and then, so, so you had mentioned, and I, I guess I didn't realize this prior to, to you saying it, but so you have your own line. And when I tell people this, that like, cause you know, there, there's a lot of contract manufacturing done and nobody really realizes that there are facilities, like you had mentioned, like you could go in there, you'd have no idea, but it's made in your facility. Right. You know, there, there are facilities that I think make every competitor's, you know, whatever the the product is, I won't say it or else then somebody will be like, I knew that you know those people. Uh, but, you know, like they're making it for the private label, the in-store um, brand, you know, the Kroger brands, the Target brands, they've got their own brands, they've got somebody else's brand. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually a pretty great way if you've got an idea, but you're like, I don't want to invest all of this time and energy and effort into building my own manufacturing. So from a packaging perspective, though, your packaging is fairly consistent. It seems like you have, you can sort of get quantity of mass with your jars and your labels are all kind of the same size and your, the caps are the same size, though different colors. Um, it, does that become a challenge then also being a contract manufacturer? Um, to, because now you have to kind of deal with 
what somebody else deems is important for their brand, whether it's a, maybe it's a jug, maybe it's flexible packaging, maybe it's glass, maybe it's PET, uh, pressure sensitive cut and stack, whatever it might be. So how do you guys manage, how do you, how do you manage that between doing what's right for your brand, but also being a contract manufacturer? We really, uh, and you're familiar with this, when you see a catalog of glass jars that a consumer might buy to make jellies at home, there's lots of choices. But as soon as you want to buy hundreds of thousands or millions of jars, there's like six choices. Mm. You know, because you need to be able to buy it every day of the year, not it's they're out of it for four months, call me next April. Uh, yeah. So what we've done is we can fill openings between 63 and 82 millimeters. It's not a big range. We can do 12 ounce to 32 ounce. We do mostly 16. So we'll show a customer, here's the six jars we can do. We can Got do a it. six pack or 12 pack, pick one of these. <laughs> and you know, you get a black or a gold or a white lid. I can put your face on it, but now you're gonna need to buy 120,000 of those lids and use them in six months. And you're gonna be liable for it until I get a feel that you can move this product. So we're fortunate we have the luxury of only dealing with people that can do a certain volume. But uh, on the ingredient side, it gets more exciting where they insist mm -hmm. on using fire roasted corn and I don't have that. So now we've probably got 320 ingredients that we carry here. And if we only did Renfro, we might only need half of those. Right. But to your point, I, I think those people are actually smarter than us that just have a laptop and a phone and a recipe and we have to do everything else. We've yeah, they're, they're the marketing. The marketing. I mean, they're basically just marketing, right? I mean, they've they've got a good idea. They've got a good recipe. And now they just have there's it's a sales and marketing arm. And they're finance. I, I say it's easy to sell. It's easy to come up with a great product. It's harder to sell it. It's really hard to sell it and have a nickel left over. Yeah. The finance aspect is huge. Yeah. And I think that's where you see companies eventually just bring in their own manufacturing is because of that challenge. Um, but th that's not to say, I mean, I, I see more people using contract manufacturing than, than not. And, and so, uh, so you guys kind of control the packaging then, by limiting, by, you know, by kind of having like an ideal customer profile and then limiting them. So you're not taking on, this is pretty big in cosmetics where they'll just sort of almost, I mean, they'll take on almost anything and cosmetics is all this differentiating. And so they've got, you know, a thousand different SKUs of bottle cap variations and things like that. Whereas for you, you're like, Hey, take it or leave it. Um, which is great. I mean, it seems like that would be obviously the the more the more simple way to go about it not having all can, those lines you can differentiate more than you would think by having a different shape label you know different colors you can do some things with the lids uh six pack 12 pack but yeah i could take you to most major grocery stores and to the salsa aisle alone i can probably show you 30 brands that i know four of us are making you know mm -hmm. because if you can't run millions of jars you don't need a boiler and a $200,000 filler and $150,000 kettles. And it goes on and on and on that CapEx that you can be out of pocket on. Yeah. And, and the risk too. I mean, you're, you're betting pretty big. So um, yeah, I, I, there was some stat that somebody told me that there was like four manufacturers in the United States of canned tomatoes or something like that. It was just, it was That's some, right. it was some absurd thing where it's like, yeah, every brand of canned tomatoes is made in, I don't know, four different, Places, and, they're, so. and they're all from the San Joaquin Valley in California. You could like almost walk between them. You know? Oh, probably. Yeah. I don't know. That's, yeah. I'm not yeah, that's super funny. familiar with it, but yeah, that's crazy. Um, so if you're listening, just know that 
that's when you're looking at the canned tomatoes, be, be assured of that. Uh, so uh, let me kind of pivot and then we'll wrap it up here because the, so, so food and specifically food packaging, um, you may not know this, but is a, is a big focus of, it's called the World Packaging Organization. So they meet with the United Nations um, and they, they specifically talk about food packaging and globally, the impact that um, food waste and food loss has and the impact that packaging can play within that. And so it's been this cool connection for me to, to observe and, and be a small part of, which is talking about packaging, sustainability with packaging, but from the perspective, not of the materials, you know, you guys are in glass, you're, you know, you're using paper labels, like it's, there's not gonna, well, Utah, you have, you can't just curbside recycle glass, but for most places, you can curbside recycle glass. Um, but more from a product um, uh, waste perspective, you know, so prolonging the life of your product. Do you guys spend much time discussing sustainability from that aspect, you know, waste of product versus, you know, obsolescence at the store? Because that's a big problem, not just sustainability wise, right? That's a big problem from a cost standpoint. You got to throw away product you've made sucks. So, um, I mean, is that a conversation that you've ever had or are you like, oh, I've never really, pro- I've never really uh, thought much about that. You know, speaking to materials, I, I looked up one for decades, we had used styrofoam inserts on our gift boxes so that the carriers wouldn't destroy them to mm-hmm. bring them to your house. And one day I was like, that is really not green. Uh, you know, we, we, have, we have this cool corrugated recyclable box in these glass jars and I'm cramming these styrofoam inserts. So we switched over to corrugated recycled pulp, you know, materials that are green, mm-hmm. we can be proud of on the inserts. That's the sort of thing we pay attention to. Nice. We're very fortunate. We have a two-year shelf life, which is awesome. So we don't, I tell people, if, if our product went out of code, you have a product rotation issue, probably. <laughs> Not, it wasn't on our side, because you're right. They, I have friends in the fresh and frozen business, and that is a problem. It, it, mm-hmm. I'm, I've served, I ran the ladder on our local food bank and saw, you know, firsthand some of these challenges of, they know how much food's being thrown away that's perfectly good, but the ability to to harvest it, capture it, redistribute it, and keep the lot tracking and everything, you know, hygienic, it's a real challenge. It's very difficult. We're fortunate that we don't deal with much of that. Yeah. So on your finished product, you wouldn't, but it would, I would imagine on your, um, on your ingredients, that would be, because that would be, that would, those would be the fresh and frozen things, right? So yeah, we, we order what we need fresh wise. Cool. My cousin, every day he has a truck. There's a, a farmer's, when I say farmer's market, it's, it's a big organization locally, but it's mm-hmm. family owned. And if we need 14,000 pounds of quarter inch chopped onion tomorrow, they bring it already chopped and everything for us. And they don't bring too much or too little. That's great. 700 pounds of eighth inch mint, serrano pepper, whatever. We, we get exactly what we need. Now, do they have some waste on their end? Probably. Probably. Yeah. But, but it's not, it's not going to waste on your end though. So right. yeah, it's cool. So it comes in, gets turned into delicious salsa and then goes out. I'm sure that's as easy as it is. <laughs> yeah, it's just wave a wand and it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's So that's my last question. And, you know, we asked this of everybody um, and, you know, to be totally candid, it, from my perspective, I'm like, well, these guys, you know, they, they have it figured out, right? Like you've, 
you're you're kicking butt, you're selling cool products, you're coming out with new things, you've got cool packaging. Um, but let's let's just let's say that there is a problem or there's it doesn't even have to be for your brand, right? Like let's just you can explain you you have all power in the universe. You have every but only for packaging, nothing else. It's a terrible superhero. <laughs> Uh, that will never be made into a comic book, but it would be maybe Captain. No, never mind. Uh, it's, it's a bad idea. Let's not do that. So you can fix anything about the, the about packaging or the packaging industry and wave that wand or snap your finger, whatever it is. Um, what's the thing that you think you would pick? Right now, it would be easy. Glass supply nationwide is horrifically short. You've heard about, you know, beer companies and soda companies cutting skews simply because they have to allocate how much goes into the cans they can get. Mm-hmm. My cousin, uh, this week and last week, we ran the glass line six days. The week before that, we ran it two days. We have lots of orders. We just couldn't get enough glass. And hmm. when we tell our major retailer buyers, occasionally we've got some delays. They just reply, oh, I know everybody with anything in glass is telling me this. Wow. And I, but you understand it. My friends, I have to explain to them, glass factories run 24-7 or zero they don't go up 12%, you know? So if your volume goes up 35%, they need to either add another entire plant or you're just gonna have to wait longer. Yeah. For us, it's been, my my cousin literally comes to work and looks around he's like, well, what can I make with this set of supplies and ingredients? (laughs) You know, we'll see what we have tomorrow. So infinite supply exactly when I need it, which we had for decades and we will have again. Yeah. Uh, But it's been a quite dicey in 2020. Yeah, that's and it's not just with glass too. I mean, we've seen obviously the aluminum can allocation issue has been an issue um, that, but even with you know when sanitizers and uh, hand soaps became this big thing, it was like everyone just gobbled up that supply. And I, I was uh, I've told this story I don't know maybe twice already on the podcast, so apologies if you're getting sick of it. But I just thought it was so fascinating was a really large liquor company, I mean, global liquor company was make, decided to make hand sanitizer to help people out during the pandemic. Well, they could make it just probably like you're saying, like you, it's not a question of, can we make the product to fulfill your orders? They couldn't get packaging. This is a multi-billion dollar international company who was like, we cannot buy. So they put it into flasks. They had leftover flasks from like a launch, just pallets of them. And they just said, just fill the flasks and label it with hand sanitizer and get it out the door. So yeah, there is there, it's been a weird, that's been a weird year for, that's been the weirdest part about packaging, I think has been just seeing these spikes, uh, you know, kind of demand surge and then the ripple effect that that has across, across the industry has, has been, has been crazy. That's a good one though. Infinite on-demand supply of everything that you need. That's a good one. We actually haven't had that one, to be honest with you. That's all I ask. That's all you need. It's simple, <laughs> right? Simple. Uh, that's cool. So um, uh, uh, first of all, appreciate it. It's been great. I love learning about your company and um, you know, happy to share with the packaging nerds out there. Um, so I know that uh, you currently have, uh, so we're, we're doing this interview in December of 2020. When it comes out, we never really know. Uh, it's some, you know, sometime early 2021. So I know you currently have a website people can go order products from. Um, it sounds like maybe you might have a, a new website coming out beginning part of 2021. Is that maybe, is that the best way to, to, 
to support and buy Mrs. Renfro's or you're like, we don't really care, just go buy it and share it and eat it with whomever? Yeah, it's always going to be, you know, most cost efficient if you see it at your local grocery store where you like to shop, farmer's market, whatever. And we're fortunate to be in pretty much every major chain. Yeah, you guys are everywhere. But there's also, but what happens when we have 30 SKUs, the grocery store is going to carry the top, you know, four to 10. Sure. So it's funny, our, our number one item on Amazon is our number 22 item national. And it actually makes sense when you think about it. It's because the people who like Carolina Reaper really like it and they they're gonna get it and so the two packs on that they we sell tons of that and through our own website we do a lot of it we're at uh you know the grocery store they don't sell as much so you yeah you get an interesting dichotomy of, of rankings between online and shelf but yeah for us all the the big boxes the independent retailer wherever you find it that's convenient to you please buy it buy lots of it uh re-gift it you know it's, it's the holidays are coming uh, and if you do have somebody hard to buy for that's out of town, yeah, our website or Amazon, you can have it sent directly to their house. And it's got my grandmother again. It'll have the little reminder. She's not actually in the jar, but that's great. great. So feel free. And thanks gonna, for letting me uh, play today. It's been fun. Definitely. I'm going to order that. And I just want to do an unboxing video because I <laughs> like I've got my kids bought me a T-shirt. It's a it's like the bad dad joke, but it says. Uh, uh, let's eat kids, let's eat kids, but it's got a comma. So in one way, it's like, <laughs> hey, it's time to eat children. And the other is like, we're going to become cannibals and eat our children. Yeah. Um, and it says commas save lives. And uh, so I'm always, I'm always down for, for like fun, that. goofy stuff. So, uh, well, Doug, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll make sure to put the website up in our, um, in the show notes. And um, hopefully you can get a, get a few more uh, Ren fans, that's not going to stick, is it? I, it shouldn't. We use I use salsa missionaries and brand fans, but I'm gonna I'm gonna submit Ren fans to the ad agency and see what happens. It's not it's not gonna make it. It's not gonna. I am. By the way, you don't know this, but uh, I don't think you know this. But I'm a um, I'm a pastor by trade, and so oh, I will wow. go with salsa evangelist uh, or salsa like missionary. That. So uh, cool right. deal. Well, thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, just as a quick reminder, um, go out and support Mrs. Renfro and their incredible products. You can do it online. You can do it in store. They're available at most retailers. Hit them up. Check out their rebrand. I just did an unboxing video for a gift pack. Uh, you can find that on my LinkedIn page. Uh, just look for Adam Peak, and you can see that unboxing video. Next week, uh, we're going to have an episode with a, another owner of a company, which is super exciting, Pura. Uh, Pura is changing the way that we experience uh, scent in the home using a smart device. Uh, we had a great conversation. It's a cool company. They're based right here where I live in Utah. So be sure to tune in next week. And as always, please support the podcast by going to peopleofpackaging.com and getting that free ebook from Doxlent. We'll talk with you soon.